Most Holy Father, you have told us in the Gospel of Matthew that you have hidden things from the wise and understanding, but reveal them to little children. With hearts as children, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. Uncover that which is hidden so your glory may be magnified. In the name of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, we pray. Amen. So just a quick recap about last week. Uh, we started last week with talk, talking about the infamous Magus from the east named Balaam, who was asked by Balak to come help and curse the Israelites. And instead of a curse, he pronounced blessings four straight times in a row. And the last blessing, he looked out over the Israelites encamped uh, in the plains of Moab, two and a half million people with tents covered in goatskin. So this sea of black tents. And he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Then we took a look at how God was supreme over the wise men in Babylon. The wise men couldn't interpret the dreams. Instead, Daniel, with God's help, interpreted their dreams. Yet Daniel was over the wise men, the successors to which were most likely the wise men that we're talking about here today. And then that great phrase in, the, in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, that phrase that's pregnant with expectation, that phrase that suggests that God has prepared the way for the birth of his son and the spread of Christianity. And then we talked about how God made his announcement to the future representatives of the church. As opposed to the religious leaders, he chose the shepherds. Through an angel, the shepherds, the representatives of the remnant of Israel. And then he chose some pagans from some other country, Gentiles, the representatives of the future church. The remnant and the Gentiles, the church, were the people that he made his announcement to. And we talked about how it's, there's no historical basis to say that Christmas was on December 25th. In fact, we looked at Spurgeon's sermon where he talked about that in, in the 1800s, and his phrase was, if there's any day that we can be sure it wasn't, it's December the 25th. Um, and then lastly, and most importantly, we talked about the fact that God reaches people where they are wherever you are, in whatever condition you're in, in whatever religious belief you have, he reaches you there. And to us, it may seem unconventional, but nothing in God's hands is unconventional. Today, we're gonna to take a look at some things that may startle you. Get ready. We're gonna look at what the star was, and I'm actually gonna be so bold as to predict when Jesus was born. So here we go. Let's first review the facts, the essential facts from last week. The wise men came from the east to Jerusalem because of his star. They came sometime after Jesus' birth. Herod in Jerusalem were troubled. Herod was troubled because he was called the king of the Jews, a title that Herod had been given by Mark Anthony and Octavian on the floor of the Senate. This is a conspiratorial man who has killed two of his sons, 
killed his wife and put her in, in um, honey so he could observe her. This is, a, this is an, an evil man, and he was troubled, and that's why he was troubled. But all of Jerusalem was troubled because they didn't know anything about it. A Messiah, a king of the Jews has been born, and they don't know anything about it. So Herod ascertained, we talked about how that word means, determined precisely from the wise men what time the star had appeared. And then Herod killed all the children, male children, in and around Bethlehem under two. And then lastly, because of a mistake that a monk in 533 A.D. made about the, determining the era of B.C. and A.D., a four-plus-year mistake, um, Herod um, died in 4 B.C., so Jesus, who was born before Herod died, had to be before 4 B.C. So your notions that, that the era began with the birth of Jesus in 1 A.D. are incorrect because of a, a medieval mistake. So now we have positioned this in the point of a, the birth of Jesus Christ prior to 4 B.C. through some unknown mechanism that the wise men knew and other people didn't know. So how did God reach the wise men? Well, you only get there by trying to think like wise men think. And that's difficult because we engraft everything naturally with what we've experienced ourselves, not with what others have experienced. Most of the translations in the Bible um, suggest that, well, not most of them, actually three out of seven, but the general thought is that wise men are astrologers. And I would say that that, with today's connotations, is probably an incorrect concept, and here's why. The wise men of those days, indeed, through the medieval age, uh, the people who studied the heavens studied the heavens. They didn't pick out a particular thing. They didn't, they didn't study necessarily the planets or the stars or other things. They looked at the entire heavens, and in truth, we have lost some of that wisdom of looking at the entire heavens as the works of God and not looking at space as some cold, dark place. No, it's alive with beauty. So if you're trying to explain what the wise men did, they looked at the entire the entire world, in their view, above them without trying to characterize what it was. So I wouldn't call them astronomers or astrologers in our modern sense because scientific understanding had not progressed sufficiently for them to know the difference between the two. I would call them searchers of wisdom. If you have a translation, if you must have a translation for Magi, I would suggest that wise men is as good as any other. So the first question that comes up generally is, well, where did these guys come from? Well, the Bible says wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. There are really only two logical possibilities based on what we know about things back then. One is from the Parthian Empire, which encompasses Babylon, Assyria, Mesopotamia, Chaldea, and what is known today as Iran. The other is Arabia. The, the strongest views are that the wise men came from somewhere in Parthia. Could be Persia, could be Babylon, but it, wherever it was, it was where people were knowledgeable about the heavens uh, to an extreme degree in our thinking today, we would say. One of the interesting suggestions about where they came from is you, if you look at er, early Christian art, 
you will see that the Magi are dressed in Persian dress, which suggests that they came from the Empire of Parthia. The other interesting fact is that in 614 um, AD, the armies of Persia came to Bethlehem and spared the church of the Nativity for the sole reason that the mosaic depicting the Magi had Persian dress. So there are some facts that would suggest that independent of Babylonian or Mesopotamian or Chaldean knowledge about, um, about the sky and, and, the, uh, and astrology, that they came from Persia. Well, let's get right down to it. What are the theories of what his star was? Well, we start with the, with the one that secular uh, theorists would give you, and that is it's just a myth. The Bible's a myth. The star's a myth. It's all a myth. We're going to discard that because we believe the Bible said something that wasn't untrue. That something actually happened. The second most logical possibility in terms of what other people have said is that it was just a miracle. It was a supernatural event, and we don't have to go beyond that. God is known to, to work supernaturally. He heals people supernaturally. I would suggest to you that a proper view of that would say that God uses often natural events in a supernatural way. The third concept is that, well, it was some astronomical event. It was a comet. It was a nova or supernova. It was a planetary conjunction. Or it was some combination of those. That's the area in which most of history has looked at this uh, phenomenon and tried to find meaning in what they could see visually in the heavens. And then the last is that it was an astrological event. My approach today is going to, to look at this differently, probably, than you have thought about looking at it. The first is... Look at the biblical text. Look carefully at the biblical text. Look carefully at the Hebrew words, excuse me, at the Greek words, at what they meant in the context of a culture in which astrology and the heavens played a significant factor in their daily lives. Second, try to look at the facts and the issues from the standpoint of a wise man. Not yours, but theirs. And third, we have the benefit today of computer technology that can actually take us back in time, thousands of years, to whatever place on earth you want to go and actually look at what was going on in the heavens at that particular time. I'm going to show you some of that today. So, first of all, the necessary attributes of the star, if it's not supernatural, it had to have been before 4 BC, because that's when Herod died. It had to have risen at sunrise when it rose in the Bible, or literally at the rising in Greek. It had to endure for some time, and it had to appear to rest over Bethlehem. And most significantly, it must have had a special, unique meaning for the wise men which Herod and the Jews did not appreciate. I cannot emphasize that point enough. There was not visual impressiveness to this event to the people in Jerusalem. Didn't happen. So all the images you've got in your head about something visually impressive, get rid of them. Didn't happen that way. Except to the wise men. 
So the very first theory that's been floated for centuries is that it was a comet. In fact, this particular painting uh, was painted the same year that Halley's Comet appeared. And if I can get my pointer to work, you can see that's Halley's Comet right there in the top of the image. Halley's Comet has been observed as far back as 1059 BC. The Chinese have recorded seeing it. Its period is 75 years. It comes around with some frequency. It happened to come around then, and that was the basis for this painting. The problem with that is, uh, and the, is uh, how can it stand still? I mean, how could a comet appear to stop its movement? But, but the astrological problem, if you're going to look at it from that standpoint, is that comets were believed to signify bad news, not royal births. And then the most obvious problem of all, and that is the one that we've talked about already, how come nobody saw it? Why didn't they see a comet? So we're going to rule out a comet. The second possibility is that it was a supernova or a nova. Any of you familiar with the sky, if you look up at Orion's left shoulder, you can see a kind of a reddish star. That star is Betelgeuse. It's a very, very large red giant. Red giants are at the end of their life. If this red giant collapsed, as, as will happen one day to Betelgeuse, it would produce a type 1a supernova. It would be extraordinarily bright, even though it's 3,000 light years away. It would cast the light of a crescent moon, causing shadows at night if that happened. So, question, could that have been it? If you look on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll see the remnants of the Crab Nebula, which is actually a supernova that happened in 1054. For 23 days in 1054 when that happened, it was visible in broad daylight. Now I say when it happened, that's when they saw it. It actually happened hundreds of thousands of light years before that, but it became visible because of the passage of light in 1054. So you've got the same problem here. It's visually impressive and you've got the same problem of how could it go before and rest. The other problem you have is that new stars to people of those days, particularly as written by Ptolemy and Firmicus and Valens, they didn't last very long and they weren't that important. And then as I said, they don't fit the biblical text. So this is the most popular theory, that it was a conjunction, a planetary conjunction, first raised by Kepler. There were between 1000 BC and 1 AD eight triple conjunctions. A conjunction is simply the approach of two planets next to each other and the degree with which they are separated uh, makes it brighter or less bright, but you can still discern two different planets with the eye. A triple conjunction is when that happens three times in a year. And that happened actually in 7 BC. There was a triple conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. The problem, the first problem is, the Bible says, his star, not his stars. And we're back to the problem of visual, um, being visually impressive, which is, which is not the case. So the planetary conjunction uh, has a problem, an additional problem, and, and a fatal problem. That is, it was in the wrong constellation. 
Bear with me while I try to explain this one to you because it will eat up my time in a heartbeat. But every 26,000 years, the um, vernal equinox, which is where the sun uh, is on the, on the day when the, in the spring when the days and nights are balanced, the vernal equinox passes through all the, all the constellations in the sky. And that is because the Earth on its axis rotates, it tilts. And so there's this tilt and that's the precession of the equinoxes. In the time of Jesus, the vernal equinox was in Aries. In the time after his death, it was in Pisces. So if you want to think about this symbolically, Aries is the lamb, Pisces is fish. Up through Jesus' birth, and indeed very close to his death in 33 uh, AD, Aries, the lamb, was the vernal equinox. After his birth, fishers of men, if you will, Pisces became the, the vernal equinox. If you go out today, look in your morning sky in March when the vernal equinox is, you will see, if you can recognize what Pisces is, that the sun rises in the constellation of Pisces. Well, several scholars uh, have determined, not the least of which was Ptolemy and Tetrabiblos and Vettius Valens and Marcus Manilus, that at the time, Aries symbolized the kingdom of Judea. So for, if you're a, a wise man and you're looking for something that has to do with the birth of royalty, in Judea, you're going to be looking at the constellation Aries. So the fatal problem, two fatal problems to the planetary conjunction are it's not, it's not about being visually impressive, and planetary conjunctions anyway aren't that visually impressive, but the big problem is it's in the wrong constellation. So the major problems with the previous theories, not something that attracted attention. I can't say that enough because that is a concept that is in our minds and because of all the stuff that we have seen about Christmas. Some star like that star, which is false, <laughs> but you see what you get when you get a slide from somewhere, it's got that kind of impression in it, not so. But something impressive to wise men. If you, the second thing that, that we need to draw from this is that if you look at the Greek word, that the wise men used. We saw his star, or the star they had seen. The Greek word, Edom, means visually, it can mean visually, but it also means to know, to perceive, or to realize. And we see this further down in that same passage when Herod said he saw that they had been tricked. Well, obviously, that was not a visual perception. That was a perception of knowledge. So the Greek word that's used with the wise men is a word that can mean to perceive, to realize, not necessarily to visually see. So, the elephant in the room. Was it an astrological event? F.F. F. Bruce, an evangelical scholar, um, a theologian, and a Christian apologist, known very well for his book on the reliability, historical reliability of the New Testament, says, can God speak through astrology? 
Yes, for he did once. Um, Gresham Machen, uh, who was a uh, theologian from the first part of the 1900s, talking about this event, says, in countless cases, as we know, error has become the stepping stone to truth. Even astrology, as has often been observed, was the ancestor of true astronomical science. No, we are unable to regard it as unworthy of God when these strangers were led by their searching of the heavens to bring gifts to the infant Savior. And, and this is, I would emphasize this point as well, because this rounds it out for me, and it should for you. It was not astrology, moreover, which played the decisive part. What really led the Magi to the feet of Jesus was not astrological calculation, but the prophecies of God's word. Recall that the Magi did not know where Jesus was born. They knew that he was born in Judea. They came, to, they were drawn by their knowledge of astrology that we're going to look at in just a minute to the capital of Judea. But how did they get to Bethlehem? The prophet Micah. The prophet Micah. God drew them to Bethlehem, but got them home with Scripture. So, we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about what the Bible says about astrology. It's not favorable, but it's a, fav it's, it's a disfavor that's, that's linked to the concept of worship. You don't worship the creation. You worship the creator. The creation still matters, and God can be seen in his creation. In the Gentile world, astrology was everything in some sense. Astrology predicted, I mean, I would say this, in Mesopotamian days, omen collecting was like opinion polls today. Um, it was everywhere. Uh, the, the collection and interpretation of omens was the job of the Baru, who Balaam was. Uh, it involved all things related to daily life. They used it to predict favorable hours, medical, pharmaceutical solutions. Professional diviners in the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian and Greek courts were treated like royalty. Even St. Augustine was a fan of astrology until he became a Christian, and then he became a very fervent critic of it. So it was everywhere. Um, two key points about astrology that changed over time. First of all, astrology was based on observation. In the very early days of astrology, going back in, into um, the culture in Mesopotamia, uh, it was just based on observation. And gods were identified with stars. Marduk was Jupiter, called the king of the stars, king of the gods. When the Greeks conquered in 323 BC, that part of the world, they brought in mathematical astronomy or scientific astronomy, which was not observation-based, it was calculation-based. So all the things that we're gonna talk about in just a few minutes were not visually done, although you'll see that there's some visual aspects to what, what I'm gonna show you that are impressive, but it's based on calculation. Birth horoscopes were common. 
In fact, the first, the earliest horoscope that, that has been found was in 410 BC. Uh, by 250 BC, they were widely used. There's still 180 Greek horoscopes in existence. There are horoscopes for, um, for uh, Hadrian. There's a horoscope for Augustus Caesar we'll look at in just a minute. Astrology was a common practice in the Gentile world. My first knowledge of this approach came when I looked at a very little-known book written by a Rutgers astronomer named Michael Molnar, who was looking at a coin that he found in Antioch, oh, excuse me, that he found, it was from Antioch, minted in 6 AD, and it's got a, an image of a ram looking over his shoulder at a star. I don't know if you can see that, but, but, but that is what that is. And that caused him to start looking at this whole idea of the Star of Bethlehem, caused him to start doing some research on, well, what does Aries have to do with the Jews? And then he started to do some research on, well, let's, let's look at some dates and let's actually see what an astrologist back then would actually think about it. And what he came up with, I'm going to show you in just a minute, I think is significant. Um, and no one has yet disputed it. He's... He's more well-known than he was because of this, uh, but it's still a fair, fairly obscure concept. But first of all, I want to explain to you the ancient birth horoscope. It was created for the time and place of birth. It uses the entire sky, not just the visible part. So again, we're back to calculation, not observation. You locate the signs of the zodiac and the positions of the sun, moon, and the five known planets, and then you calculate positions of the planets with respect to horizon. And you add various things like exaltations and trines, and I'm not going to go into all that here because it, it, <laughs> it just won't. <laughs> I'm not sure I could, actually. Um, so this is up here for one purpose, to confuse you. No. It's, it's up here just so you can see what the issues are. Not going to go through each one of those. We're not going to talk about what this meant, what that meant. But there are elements in astrological thought that you look for when you're looking for a horoscope for a royal birth. And th these are those elements. And in particular, if you're looking for one in Judea, these elements need to be occurring in the constellation of Aries. They need to be occurring at the rising of the sun, and they need to be in a certain order. And the order of these occurrences affects how the interpretation is made. Plus, there are intensifiers for a regal birth. Um, it's important that you understand that the Greeks referred to planets and stars the same way. They were just stars. They didn't have a concept of planets. They were moving stars. It's also important that you understand that Jupiter has long been associated with regal status. If Jupiter rose, to, a, to an ancient astrologer, if Jupiter rose before the sun in a given constellation, it was associated with imperial conditions associated with that constellation. And imperial conditions were most often produced by the sun in Jupiter or the moon in Jupiter or sometimes by the sun and moon. The other important concept that you need to understand in this short period of time when I'm really packing it in, I'm sorry, is something known as a heliacal rising. 
The heliacal rising is the rising of a particular star before the sun in the morning. Probably the most important point to, a, to an ancient astrologer. Um, in the case that I'm going to show you in a moment, Jupiter rises before the sun in the constellation Aries with greater than a 12 degree separation. Without getting in, into too much detail, which I've already done and I apologize for, the, the concept of the heliacal rising is important because to an ancient astrologer, for the planet to have, for the star to have significance, it has to have enough separation from the sun so that it won't be damaged by the heat of the sun. And so if you have a heliacal rising where the planet is, or the star is right near the sun, then that doesn't mean as much because you don't have enough separation. However, if you get enough separation, it's a rebirth. It's like, okay, this, this star has made it out of the sun's grasp and therefore it has meaning. And put that at the rising of the sun and it becomes extremely significant. So, for a messianic regal birth in Judea, you would also need a lunar conjunction and eclipse of the regal star Jupiter. If you look at the circumstances that existed between 10 BC and 85, there's only one possible answer to that question when all of these things are lined up properly, and when there was a lunar conjunction and eclipse of the star Jupiter. And it all happened in Aries, the sign for Judea, April 17, 6 BC. Now, if you think about it a little bit, there's nothing inconsistent with that date with the biblical concept of time that was imposed by Herod. Herod died in 4 BC, killed all the children to and under. We can talk about the variables of that, that, well, maybe Herod overreached, or, you know, how could it be that Jesus was born exactly two years? We don't need to go into that, but that's an outer framework for the concept of two years would be April 6 BC. That's what it would look like. Now, I caution you by saying that that's not visually seeable because of the sun. But if you look at this, if you're an ancient astrologer, this would be startling. It would be unmistakable that something unique had happened. It would be unmistakable that it was associated with Judea. And it would be something that you had never heard of or experienced in your lifetime and never would again hear of or experience. People ask the question about rarity and they say, well, it wouldn't have to be extraordinarily rare. No, actually, no. I mean, if you're looking for a horoscope, you're looking for unique conditions that happen on a particular date in support of somebody's birth to determine if they were divine. This is predictive. This is not after the fact. This is them looking at something. They don't know there's a royal birth, but when they see this, they know something unusual has happened. But in terms of rarity, the only possible way that this could repeat was about once every 60 years. 
And even then, it doesn't repeat like this. In AD 54, this sequence uh, of stars and planets, uh, excuse me, of planets and the sun and moon lined up similarly, but there was a problem. Mars was not in the right place. And according to an astrologist looking at it then, Mars being in the place it was meant there would be a king, but he would lose his throne. So if you're an ancient astrologer, you'd never seen this before, you'd never heard of this before, this would have been extraordinarily startling. And what's more, if you charted this and compared it to some other well-known divinity like Augustus Caesar, who was believed to be divine, you would be even more startled. On the right-hand side is the charting of the location of the planets in, in conjunction with the birth of Augustus Caesar. And um, he was believed to be a god. He was believed to be divine. If you look on the left, it doesn't take a genius to see that something remarkable is going on. Everything is clustered in Aries, and everything is so much more astoundingly perfect than the one on the right. So if you're, if you're an ancient astronomer, or excuse me, astrologer, and you're looking at this, it's like, ah, the light has come on. Well, that's, that, that answers a lot of questions, but it doesn't really answer went before and came to rest. In, in Matthew 2, 9, it's recorded, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Went before. An interesting phrase, actually, to a Greek astrologer, went before means to proceed in the same direction as the sky. Those of you who may have had some training in astronomy should recognize what that is. That's called retrograde motion. Typically, a planet will move east to west, while the sky behind it moves west to east. That's how the typical motion is. When the planet begins to move the way the sky moves, that's called retrograde motion. And what is retrograde motion? Well, if you've ever passed a car on the interstate, it looks like it's going backwards, doesn't it? Well, that's an illusion. We all know that. We know the car's got forward motion. But as you pass it, it's like it's, it's going backwards. Same thing is happening in the sky with a planet. Earth, Earth's orbit is smaller than Jupiter's, and so it makes one revolution faster than Jupiter's. Jupiter's takes 12 years. Earth doesn't take 12 years, it takes a year. But as we pass Jupiter, it looks like it's going backwards, and that's retrograde motion. So if you're an observer of Jupiter over time, you're familiar with this concept. Jupiter will appear to, to go in a little loop, and I'm gonna show you what that looks like in just a minute. That's retrograde motion. Well, the Bible also says it went before them until it came to rest. Resting is stationing. When a, when a planet goes into retrograde motion, it will do this little movement and then it will pause in a spot for a few days and then it will come back like this. As you pass it, you're getting this little loop effect. So we have, in effect, in the text of Matthew, 
using Greek astrological concepts, a perfect description of retrograde motion and stationing. So Jupiter, from an astro astrologist's point of view, went before, became retrograde, and then came to rest station. Here's what that looks like. This is actually from that time, April 17. It's going in one direction. This is Jupiter. It stations. And it comes back and goes the way that the sky goes. And then it will station again. Now folks, that's actually what happened. That's a calculated, obviously none of us were there, but that's a calculated description of actually what retrograde motion is and what stationing is. And in fact, what happened was, Jupiter annually is in retrograde motion for four months. If you, if you um, put a four-month timetable on that time frame, you're talking about a period of time in the summer and in the fall of 86. And that period of time is four months. So if you look at the first stationing event, it was between April 7th and August 23rd. Jupiter was 7 degrees, 70 degrees in, in the sky, so it was clearly visible. If you needed to see Jupiter, in which, in which event we, we see later on the, the wise men actually needed to see Jupiter when they left Bethlehem. Uh, it again stations on December the 19th. And guess what else? It stations in the constellation of Aries on both occasions. So to an ancient wise man who's looking at this, it's just more confirmation that something is going on. This is a view. Any of y'all been to Jerusalem? Anybody know the Jaffa Gate? Jaffa faces west, right? Where is Bethlehem from Jaffa? South. So if you're, if you're going out the Jaffa Gate, you're going toward the coast, you're going toward Jaffa. Back during those days, um, at least in the time of Jesus, there were three, there was a principal road that went to Jaffa, there was one that went south to Bethlehem, there was one that went north to other places. And so you're coming out the Jaffa Gate, you've had your little chat with Herod, you're coming out the Jaffa Gate, you're going to Bethlehem because that's where the prophet Micah told you to go. You take a left, which means you're what? Going south. As you turn the corner on the morning of August 23rd, if that happens to be the date, for several days, or as you turn the corner on the evening of December 19th, if that happens to be the date, guess what you're going to see in the, star, in the sky above you when you turn the corner as you head to Bethlehem? You're going to see Jupiter. You're going to see it on August 23rd, and you're also going to see it on December 19th. I have given you a lot to think about. For that, I do not apologize. <laughs> I have challenged your ideas, I think, about what the Star of Bethlehem was and what it wasn't. Now, I can say with great candor, we don't really know. But I can also say with great candor, we have been given minds to reason and to think 
and to look for answers. My child, well, my oldest son, was my obviously oldest son, my first child, had one question that he drove me nuts with. I bet you can't guess what it was. Why? But why? We're, we're programmed to ask those questions. We're made in the image of God. We search for knowledge, and sometimes we get off the track. But this is knowledge capable of being discerned consistent with the text of Matthew, consistent with the way that an ancient astrologer might look at this, and actually fits in nicely with God's plan about reaching people where they are. To us, it might make no sense. To an ancient wise man, it makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. And not only perfect sense, astoundingly perfect sense. A regal birth in the constellation of Aries that has messianic portents. Imagine these guys who possibly heard from Daniel, who had heard from Balaam. A star shall come out of Jacob. Got in, embedded in the concept of Daniel. This is the same Daniel who had the angel Gabriel visit with him in chapter 9 and give him a messianic timetable. Now, I, I would not suggest that you look at that and say he could figure it out, but he was there. And it's the same angel Gabriel that came to who else? Mary, the messenger of God. There are links here that our knowledge suggests to us should be related. Well, very quickly, how much time I've got left? Perfect. Okay. What does all of this have to do with God's redemption? I'm going to suggest to you that God doesn't act in a single point in time. He acts in all points at all times. So when you see an event that God has instituted, it's part of many other events. It's not unique. It may be unique to us, but it's not unique to him. It's as if you saw a stitch in a quilt. He sees the quilt. He created the quilt. We see the stitch. I want to see if I can get you to see something going on here that's broader than just what I've told you. And I like to call it the symphony of redemption because it rings true. How would an April birth of Jesus Christ fit into God's symphony? Well, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He died in April. We know that. I won't go into the details of that, but he died in April. He would be born in April. April, a month that is the first month of the Jewish year. It is a month that has the um, name Tale associated with, which is the Lamb. The Lamb of God, born and died in April. Jesus, out of Jacob. He's from the tribe of Judah. Nisan is the, tr is the month, April is the month of the first tribe, of the, the king of tribes, Judah. Judah, the one to be the first tribe to lead the march, always first. Judah, Jesus came from Judah. David came from Judah, the king of tribes. The Lamb of God sacrificed 
to defeat sin. The Passover, where the male lamb is sacrificed to defeat Egypt's God, the ram. The lamb of God defeats the ram. And the month of Nisan is a month of redemption. According to the Jews, from the Talmud in Nisan, our forefathers were redeemed from Egypt. And in Nisan, we will be redeemed. The Jews believed the Messiah would come in April. Jesus, the one who created the church, the birth of Israel of the promise, the Passover, the birth of Israel as they came out of Egypt, and Nisan, the beginning, the renewal. There is a pattern here. There's a pattern that speaks to God's symphony of redemption. But I want to leave you just with these thoughts. The star out of Jacob. What's the connection? Matthew, Jesus is the star. Out of, descended from the tribe of Jacob or Judah. Out of Jacob. Matthew 2.2, his star. Jupiter, called the morning star to the ancients, out of, in the month of, Judah, Nisan, in the month of April. Revelation, Jesus, the bright morning star, descendant of David, of Judah. This is, you can't look at this and not be overwhelmed. It is an overwhelming concept that God weaves together events to speak the same thing. And you know what that same thing is? It's a song of redemption. It's a song of redemption. It's profoundly simple. Profoundly simple words that forever changed eternity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever you, me, the Magi, the shepherds, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this Christmas, in spite of everything that I have just told you, let's not celebrate a date. Let's celebrate a birth. The birth of Jesus Christ. Born so he could do one thing. Die for you and for me. Take your sins upon him. Take my sins upon him. And forever make eternity available to you. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, we are, we are overwhelmed. We become overwhelmed. We should be overwhelmed with your mercy. We're overwhelmed by your control of the skies. We're overwhelmed by all the majesty and glory that we can see in things around us and things above us. We worship and we praise you. We praise you most of all for the birth of your Son, that through belief in him, eternity is opened up, us, opened up to us. Help us to be impressed with the magnanimous gift that you gave us. 
Help us to understand it. Help us to believe it as we celebrate your birth in this season. In the name of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, I pray. Amen. Let's thank Alan for his hard work.